Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us for Christ's sake? And God's people said, amen. You can be seated. In light of verses 18 to 24, the believer's great privilege to worship in the heavenly Jerusalem, as Pastor Russ covered last week, the author of Hebrews now gives us two exhortations. One is a warning. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And the other is a, a positive admonition or, or a charge, I'm going to call it. In verse 28, let us be thankful and worship. First, a warning. A warning. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Once again, the author warns us of falling away and not heeding the call of Christ to bow to his lordship. He has warned us, the reader, to be vigilant to make every effort to strive to enter God's rest, to run with endurance the race that is set before us, to see to it that no one falls away, ourselves, and concluding our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here he issues one last warning as he begins to wrap up his letter. Folks, we're going into chapter 13 next week. I look at this preaching schedule and it says Advent's coming very quickly. We're almost done with Hebrews, and the author wants to be sure that you heed this warning. Listen. He speaks plainly. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Remember that rebellious generation who did refuse him. They did not escape, and so you also will not escape if you refuse him. In fact, the author here is giving us this understanding that the stakes are even higher than his previous warnings. Why? Because the one who is issuing the warning is Jesus Christ himself. At that time, God shook the mountain. Pastor Russ covered that last week. But on the day, the great day when the man comes around, when Christ returns, he will shake heaven and earth. And he decides 
who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same when the man comes around. You have heard the saying before, perhaps, this life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Good saying. Here, though, we could say this life will soon be passed and only those found in Christ will last. Verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The things that cannot be shaken are the things pertaining to Christ and his kingdom. Daniel 4, verse 3, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Amen? All right, get saved and become Baptist this morning. Amen. Psalms 145, 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalms 9, verse 7, the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And one day, you will be shaken. All things will be shaken. The question is, friend, will you remain when all things are shaken? The answer is simple. If you are in Christ's kingdom, you will remain. And if you are not in Christ's kingdom, then you will not remain when all things are shaken. Every knee will bow, but only those covered with the righteousness of Christ will lift their heads. All others will hide their faces in shame, Psalms 34 says. On that great and terrible day, there will be no do-overs, no second chances, and no, absolutely no excuses. All those who have bowed to the sun, paid homage to the sun, will receive their unshakable reward, everlasting life, and joy with their Savior. And all those who have rejected the sun will reap their just sentence. They will be shaken to the core and destroyed, receiving everlasting death, sorrow, and torment apart from God. Cash says in the song, whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. There will be no do-overs on that day. Whoever is filthy, Let him be filthy still. So listen to the words long written down as a warning when the man comes around. Now sinful human nature takes great offense at the warnings of the exalted Christ. And and this is the exalted Christ issuing us this warning. And sinful human nature takes great offense to the warnings of the exalted Christ when they should be overwhelmingly thankful that the Lord of heaven and earth would stoop to speak to wretched sinners at all. Now we quote and we sing Psalm 2. I have the heathen nations rage. You know that song? 
We quote that and we sing that. And yet how often do we have the same rebellious spirit? Like the nations, you rage. Unfair. It's unfair. And like the peoples, you plot in vain. How can we, how can we twist things to our advantage? How can we take the scripture and, and mold it into our life versus being molded into it? I don't like God's righteous requirement. I don't like living holy. It's hard. I don't like the commands and the responsibilities of biblical masculinity or, or femininity or as a parent. So I'll, I'll plot and twist ways to shoot that down. I don't like a church who calls me to repentance and faith. So I'll, I'll find a straw man argument to justify leaving and going and finding a soft church where less is expected. And, and all of this, and we are all prone to this, in some way, your heart is saying this to the exalted Christ. We say, how can I dethrone God in this area of my life and I be Lord in this area? Well, I don't understand how a loving God could let bad things happen to good people. Here's the problem. You are not good. That's the problem. There is only one who is good. And the only bad thing that ever happened to a good person was the crucifixion of the perfect Son of God by evil hands. Your hands. My hands. Well, I just don't know how it's fair that God chooses some people and not others. I think it was Wilson who said, clay pots have such fragile egos. It's just not fair. Does the clay, Paul says, say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Unfair. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. To that, Spurgeon replied, it is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. Right? How could God say he hated Esau? Well, that's, not, that's not the question. That's not my struggle. How could God let all those people drown in the flood and, and only save Noah? And that's not the question. How could he spare anyone? How could he spare anyone? Matthew 5, 3 through 4, I was reading this to my boys recently. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who know their great need for God. The kingdom belongs to them. The kingdom does not belong to those who do not believe that they need God. Because Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those whose hearts are broken and contrite at the face and the, the reality of their sin. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, how happy, blessed means, are those who mourn over their sin and it causes them to walk in repentance and a godly sorrow versus a worldly one. They shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. 
Amazing grace is only a sweet sound if you know that you're a saved wretch. It's not a sweet sound if you think you are complete in and of yourself. Sinful human nature hates, always has, and always will the lordship of Christ. Let us break their bands asunder, Psalm 2 says, and cast away their cords from us. And you know how the psalm ends. God laughs, and he will have the last laugh. So kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Cash says, will you partake of that last offered cup? Or will you disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? This is a heavy and stern warning from the exalted Christ who sits enthroned on the access of the earth, ruling and reigning over all things. And the author says, do not forsake this warning. Listen to this warning. Because it is the exalted Christ who speaks. How does the exalted Christ communicate to us his warnings? Sinai, they saw the thunder. They, at times, Moses heard the voice of the Lord. They saw the signs and they saw the wonders, but God gave them a word written in his own hand. Three ways that the exalted Christ communicates to us his warnings. Number one, Christ speaks in his inspired word of exhortation, the scriptures. This book that you bring with you on Sunday mornings or if it's your phone, your device, that maybe you have many, many, many copies of. Christ speaks to us through his word. Do not neglect it. Hebrews 13, 22, the author says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly, I was talking to Russ about this earlier, basically as the author ends, uh, lands the plane of his letter here, he says, the whole letter is just a brief summary of my thoughts. So we never got the extended version. We can talk to him about it in heaven. Um, but he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to bear with my word of exhortation. Listen to what has been written down. Listen to the word, right? Hebrews is a part of the canon of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. Listen to the exalted Christ speaking through his word. Through the Holy Scriptures, God's voice is heard today. Heed his warning. You don't have to grope about in the dark wondering what God requires. It's like, the, uh, it's like the argument about religions. One man, you know, it's like a bunch of blind men around the elephant. Have you heard that analogy? And the one feels the trunk and he says that it's a rope and the one feels the leg and he says that it's a tree trunk and the other one feels the tail and he says it's a broom or whatever. The analogies go on and on and on. But here's the thing. What if the elephant speaks? 
and tells the blind men, I'm, I'm an elephant, guys. I'm not a trunk. I'm not a, I'm not a broom. I'm not a tree. I am an elephant. Let me tell you what an elephant is and what an elephant does. God has spoken to us in his word. You don't have to grope about in the dark because the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. If you avoid and neglect the exalted Christ word to you in his holy inspired word, you will fall away. He has spoken to us through his word. Number two, the exalted Christ speaks to us through his church. He speaks to us through his church. We have seen this all throughout Hebrews. Starting back in 3.13, but exhort one another. Who's he talking to? Who's he writing this to? The church. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Over and over we have seen the author of Hebrews call the church to help one another persevere. The church is to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Talked about this a couple weeks ago. You are your brother's keeper. The advancement of God's kingdom will be brought about through God's church. This is how he has chosen to bring about the kingdom, to advance it. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Without a church, you will waver. Isolated, I have seen it over and over and over again. People who isolate themselves and they fall away. Without the church, you will waver. I should, let me back up and say, without a good church, you will waver. A good church who glorifies God and preaches the truth of his word and calls people to faith and repentance. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Without the church, you will not walk in love and good works. You will lack in those things. You are desperately in need of one another. This is why the, the, the scripture calls a sheep, Jesus being the shepherd. Right? Sheep don't really like each other, but they need each other. And you might not like each other too much. That's fine. You need each other. And God in his sovereign plan has put you here and given you brothers and sisters that you probably would have never had anything in common with before. And you need each other to persevere. And through your brothers and sisters in covenant community, you hear the voice of the exalted Christ speaking to you his warnings. By our communion with each other, we grow in our communion with God. This is why we are commanded in um, the scripture, in uh, Hebrews 10, to not neglect to meet together. Many of the heavy warnings about falling away into apostasy are the author's response to Christians neglecting the physical gathering of the local church. How often we pass over this, you know, don't neglect to gather together as the habit of some. Many, many commentators have said that 
one of the main reasons and his main concern in all of the warnings that he has written about apostasy, he's responding to the neglect of Christians who were neglecting the local gathering, saying if you begin to make this a habit, you will fall away. It is a slippery slope. That's why he says it is the habit of some. And you know what fuels habits? Excuses. Self-justification. People don't reject the church and Christ overnight. It's a slow burn. People don't give into apostasy overnight. They give in one decision at a time. Like Samson's seemingly harmless flirtation with Delilah. Seemed harmless. Samson does not find himself blind and chained between the pillars of God's enemies overnight. It was one compromise at a time. Night after night gave way to another one until his strength was gone. And this is the excuse often that we can make. People will say, what in the world happened to so-and-so? You've seen their social media lately? Like, the things that they're saying about the faith, like, what is happening? Like, it seems like they just, seem like we knew them so well, and they just gave in overnight. Have you seen what's happening? They're embracing heresies, or, or they, they say they're now an agnostic or an atheist. Well, listen, and don't hear me wrong, this goes much deeper than just coming and physically gathering on Sunday morning. The author wants us to go deeper in this, right? It's, it's easy to show up to the gathering of God's people, to our, our home groups, to our DNAs, to our doxas, with a, I'm here physically, but a spirit of isolation, a spirit that is not hospitable. Oh, you're here but you're not really here, right? It's easy to be a warm body in a pew. Especially today, because they turned the boiler on, and it's hot in here. Like, turn the boiler on, Matt, and turn the boiler off, Matt. It's hot in here. You must make yourself available for encouragement, for love and good works. You must make yourself available to be kept. Right? It is the responsibility of all of us to be our brother's keeper and to make sure that no one falls away, but it is also our responsibility to make ourselves available to be kept. This means we have to understand with a sober-mindedness our own proclivities to sin and be open with those to each other. Confess your sins one to another. Why? So that you can pray for one another. How often we, we hide it and keep it close to the chest and begin slowly to compromise until we find ourselves further and further away from one of the ways that the exalted Christ speaks to us. You have to be willing to be kept. You must make yourself available so people can encourage you to love and good works. This is very practical too. Like, Are you, are you the last one to show up? To an event, like you late showing up and then the first one to leave? 
Praise God for a church who sticks around when the sound guys turn the lights off. They're like, hey, hey, we're still talking here. Praise God for that. But if you neglect that or despise it, thinking that, that, that just conversation with your brothers and sisters of Christ about what's going on during the week is, is unimportant, that's such arrogance in your heart. You think that you can handle it on your own, and you cannot. You cannot. And you are neglecting a gift, one of the ways that the exalted Christ speaks to us. Lots of times people will cry that no one is in their corner, but they're not even in the ring. <laughs> well, no one talks to me, but well, you got to be here. You have to make yourself available of the heart and open up for exhortation, for rebuke, for counseling, to humble yourself in this way. If you refuse to let others keep you, this is just pride of the heart. You fancy yourself spiritually mature and in need of less help than the next guy. When in reality, you're keeping people at arm's length because you're afraid. Because when people get close, they smell the bad breath. When people get close, they see the imperfections. And that's scary. When people get close and begin to see the imperfections in a faithful church, then they in love will call you to faith and repentance. And at the heart, that is why we keep people at an arm's length. Because we see where it's going, and it's getting harder to hide. And so we keep people at arm's length. Do not neglect this grace. Do not neglect this gift. Are you? Neglecting this gift of grace? Are you on the margins of the Christian community, either physically or spiritually? You are in danger, not of just missing out on some of the uh, activities. You are in danger, friend, of falling away. And many people on the day will be shaken to the core and destroyed because they neglected the, one of the very means that God had given to speak to us his warnings, the church. The church is not perfect, but it is Christ's bride, and he is making it something beautiful. Do not neglect it. Some of the signs that we will see this fade starting to happen is a lack of hospitality. And I don't mean just like having people into your home to sit around your table. I mean a spirit of hospitality that looks up from your life and sees others around you. One that's willing to open your home, one that's willing to engage with other people. A spirit of hospitality is a mark and a command of the Christian. And a lack of hospitality is a sign of someone who is isolating themselves or in danger of isolating themselves. A lack of confessing your sins. A lack of confessing your sins is a sign of someone who is in danger of marginalizing themselves either spiritually or physically from the Christian community. Nitpicking, grumbling, gossip, Phariseeism, legalism, strong among arguments, a lack of joy in God. Christian perseverance is a community endeavor, a community effort. And the Lord Jesus speaks to us his warnings in part through 
his church. Do not neglect this gift of grace. Number three, within the church, the exalted Christ's voice is particularly heard through the elders, through the leaders, especially those who teach God's word. One commentator said, because the ascended Christ addresses us from heaven as his word is read and preached, our ears must be attentive to his voice and our hearts responsive to his warnings, corrections, and exhortations. We'll get into this next week, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Pastor Matt will unpack that for us in the coming weeks. Such servants of the word may seem less splendid than the angels who have heralded God's word, but they are heirs of salvation whom actually angels are sent to serve, and through them Jesus Christ, who reigns the same yesterday, today, and forever, teaches and leads his people. He teaches and leads his people through the leaders of the local church. And so often people neglect this gift of grace. They long to hear God speak to them, to comfort them, to guide them in their life. And yet they neglect the word of God declared every single week by God's appointed leaders. Again, this goes deeper than simply the preaching from God's word on Sunday morning. But in particular, when God's people gather together and the word of God is open and exposited, the exalted Christ speaks to this lowly vessel. I am nothing, and may I decrease so that he can increase. But God has chosen these earthen vessels to put his glory in and to speak to us. God declares to us week by week through our leaders. But oftentimes, instead of hearing the voice of the exalted Christ, people tend to hear things that irritate them. Instead of cultivating ears that listen for the voice of Christ speaking through the preacher, they cultivate ears that listen for things that they can disagree with that will then confirm in their mind things that they think they already know. The exalted Christ speaks his warnings through your elders. Do not neglect this gift of grace. And at this point, especially if you've been with us for the entirety of the series of Hebrews, you might want to stand up and say, I get it. If I don't make every effort, if I, if I don't strive, I'll fall away. Like, I get the point. I get the message. And to that I would say, as Luther said, we, we who know the gospel are in need of gospel the most. It has to be continually pounded into our heads because we are forgetful people, right? What got that rebellious generation in trouble? They forgot the God who brought them out of Egypt. They began to grumble and complain, and they fell away. More on that in a minute. Okay, make every effort. Strive. You might just be like, I I'm here, ain't I? I'm not going to fall away. But here again, once more, the author wants to make sure he is crystal 
clear as he speaks to the church of the day and all churches to come, including Christ the Lord Church. He's speaking to the current church participants, some of whom may not have possessed true faith even though they thought they did. The original recipients and all churches to come must heed this warning. Verse 25, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Talking about the rebellious generation that fell away. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you are not capable of being like that rebellious wilderness generation that fell away. Heed the warning. Listen to the exalted Christ. If you refuse him, you will be just like the Exodus generation, that first generation who rejected the voice of the one who spoke and did not enter God's rest. Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, like today, right now, today, as you sit in these pews, if you do not heed his voice, hear it and heed it, do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion. So, so given the splendor and the glory, the nature of the new covenant that we inherit, and the reign of Christ who is exalted and warns from heaven, the author now, in light of this, calls for a response of repentance and faith. The, the response of faith is to heed the warning and pay homage to the Son. Bow the knee. If you heed the warning of the exalted Christ and trust in him, then you will not be shaken. Because you are children of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his unshakable kingdom lasts forever. Amen? But here's a key point. His unshakable kingdom lasts forever, and we will inherit it fully one day in all of its entirety and glory. But his unshakable kingdom belongs to you now, right now. It belongs to you. At 11.14 a.m. on this day, the kingdom of God, if you are in Christ, belongs to you. And it is an unshakable kingdom that will last forever. The kingdom is yours. Verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are, uh, that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. God has a kingdom that is so unshakable that it will survive when everything else dissolves. And on that day, when the man comes around, anything not invested in the kingdom will dissolve and fall away. You and anything and any effort that you put forward that was not for the kingdom will fall away. Christ's kingdom will not be shaken, and if you are in Christ, then that includes you and all the things that you have done for his kingdom. One commentator says, this text assures us that Jesus sprinkled blood, silence, Sinai's terrors, and assured us unto the Father's favor. And on that day, those who are in Christ will look and see 
and not hide their face in shame and call for the rocks to fall upon them because they are covered, not in their own righteousness, but in the righteousness of the perfect priest who has made justification for them once and for all. Amen? But there's more, okay? But wait, there's more. Okay, infomercial. I thought I was done. No, there's more. As I said this already, so the kingdom is yours and the kingdom is now. The kingdom is now, okay? The unshakable kingdom of God is upon us. Christ has defeated Satan, sin, and death. All we await for is for the stench of sin and death to be no more and for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Christ is Lord and for Christ to judge and punish his enemies. As we've already learned here in Hebrews, we, we must live in light of the future reality, right? Our hope is forward-focused, forward-looking. So, we live now in light of a future reality. On that day, everything that is not a part of Christ's kingdom will dissolve and fall away as it is shaken. And if you're in Christ, you will not be shaken. All the things that you have done for Christ's kingdom will not be shaken. Amen? That future reality must affect the way you live now. It has to affect the way you live now. The reality of the day must affect our current lives. The events of the day affect the events of this day. How I parent, how I interact with my spouse, my church, my workplace, my money, whatever. If Christ is Lord and he is, then he claims it all. And his kingdom is now. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What does it say? On earth, as it is in heaven. Throughout the parables of Jesus, you see faithful servants working as they await the return of their master. There's an old hymn, work for the night is coming. Right? You see them working and busy. Those unfaithful servants are the ones who are idle, who have buried their talent in the earth. But those faithful ones realize that the kingdom is now. I must cultivate the master's inheritance now. And they are given to us as examples to follow in the parables of Jesus. Kingdom work is meaningful and it will last forever. Let me talk about the kingdom now. Kingdom work is meaningful and it will last forever. Your work for the kingdom has great value and meaning. Work great or small if done for Christ is greater and more significant than anything else you could do. The greatest thing that you could dedicate your life to is kingdom work for the glory of God. And that can happen whether you're a plumber or you're an executive or you're a doctor or you're in the military or whatever it is. Whether you dig ditches or you program computers. It is meaningful, and it will last forever if done for Christ, and it is the greatest thing you could dedicate your life to. All the accolades that we praise people of the world for will mean nothing. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. Rome in all of its glory, Palestine in all of its glory, 
Nebuchadnezzar thinking he was a god and God put him on his knees to eat grass like an animal. The great United States of America, a drop in the bucket. And if it does not heed God and his holiness, all those one day will fall away. Work for the kingdom is, is meaningful. Are you looking for meaning and significance in your life? Are you looking for something that, that matters to give you a sense of fulfillment? Looking for something great to put on your gravestone one day? Like, so-and-so did this. You, you go to Willow Cemetery and you see the Wright Brothers' tombstones. Or John Dunbar, John Lawrence Dunbar, a, a poet, a local poet, and a verse from his poetry. Napoleon, all the things that he thought that he was so great for. Rome, whatever it is, you name it, all these wonderful things, cures for diseases, help for the poor, help for humanity, help for the climate, whatever, people are looking for significance. They're looking for something to give them a sense of meaning. And it's coming from a place where they want to, they long for meaning, and they want to be able to do something, they think, for the flourishing of others. But it is, if it is not for Christ's kingdom, whatever it is, it will, it will fall away, and it won't help people, truly. It will be insignificant and unsatisfactory in the end. Looking for something that will last. How about this? That my life proclaims with every breath and every action that Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. You can put that on my tombstone. Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. That is the life we must live. And kingdom work is meaningful. And it will last forever. If you don't desire to live a life that declares that with every ounce of your being, then you are wasting your life. Wasting your life. And, and don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I got to... If I'm a program dude on a computer, then I gotta go like be a missionary in Africa or something. No. The reformers helped us understand that whether you were a, a Christian priest or whether you were a Christian farmer, it was holy work, kingdom work done as unto the Lord. So do it with all your might. The others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And if that is not what we are striving for, repenting when we work for our own glory, then we are wasting our lives. But a life that is dedicated for the glory of God and his kingdom will last forever and is a life worth living. Everything you build apart from Christ will be shaken. Remember the foolish man in the song that you learned in Sunday school from Scripture? The foolish man, what did he build his house upon? Sand. When the rains came down, the, sand, the house on the sand, I think this is the King James Version, went splat. But the wise man builds his house on what? The rock. The rains come down, floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. Those who are anchored in Christ, we have an anchor for the soul that goes from our heart and is 
hooked solidly around the throne of the Son of God. And those who do work for his kingdom will last forever. Psalms 62, verse 1, my soul finds rest in God alone. Alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Kingdom work is guaranteed to succeed. Kingdom work is guaranteed to succeed. Matthew 16, 18b, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church's mission will succeed. And anything that stands in the way of the church's mission will be crushed and dissolved. God will accomplish his mission through his church, through you. You can be confident that if you're building your life upon his kingdom, that the things that he promised will come to pass will come to pass. It will succeed. We can be confident that the good seed that we sow will return in a good harvest. Parents and grandparents, you can trust that if you train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You can have faith in that. Why? Because the kingdom of God is yours, and it is now. Men, you can trust that God will bless the work of your hands as you cultivate masculine self-mastery for the good of others. If you are a man skillful in your work, you will stand before kings and not before obscure men. Ladies, you can trust as you look well to the ways of your household and do not eat the bread of idleness that your children will rise up and call you blessed and your husband also will praise you. You are not like a foolish feminist who despises their God-given orientation. No, you know that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You can trust in this, and you can know that all other pursuits that the world could throw at you are folly and foolishness and will fall away. And like God, should be laughed at. Not at God, but like God laughs, you should laugh at. Watch out for the lightning. As, listen, as you plant, are, are you sharing the gospel with somebody right now? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody in your workplace or a neighbor. Listen, as you plant, as you water, as you sow seeds, you can know that God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who brings it about. Right? Our evangelism, especially as we believe in the sovereignty of God, is guaranteed to work. So share boldly. Share widely. Declare Christ as Lord and teach people to observe and obey everything that he has commanded. Any and everything that tries to stop the advancement of Christ and his kingdom will fail. It will not be shaken or shattered at all. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Behold, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. Do you believe that? Then let's live it. Last, a charge. Positive admonition. So he's given us this warning. He's given us this warning. And we see that this warning is, is um, believed by those who step into faith and action. Right? It's not just a verbal, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but it must be seen in our actions. Paying homage to the Son. Kiss the Son lest he be angry with thee. That is seen by a life of worship, and that's what he calls us to now. What should this unshakable truth produce in us? Here the author lays the foundation for the marks of the true believer that we will be seeing in chapter 13. There's some marks of the true believer. You see other things like this, a list of the marks of true believers, like in Romans 12. What is true faith? What does a real believer look like? Here he's kind of laying the groundwork for this. Those who heed the warning of the Son, who bow the knee to his lordship as Lord and Savior, this is what their lives will look like. It will be a life of thanksgiving and praise. A life of thanksgiving and praise. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Can I pause there a second? Are you grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken? We've gotten away from the impact that this should have upon us because we've stopped singing songs in our churches that remind us that we are wretches and worms. (laughs) apart from Christ. Because we are talked to about realizing our full potential and what a wonderful, unique thing that we are. Sure, in Christ, in Christ, we develop into who we are, who we are truly supposed to be. But you see, you're not going to receive in gratefulness a kingdom that cannot be shaken if you didn't think that you could be shaken in the first place. Right? Amazing grace only sounds sweet if you know yourself to be a wretched sinner. And that is not something that you leave at the moment of your, of your um, salvation. And that is what we carry with us until we see the face of our King. A life of thanksgiving and praise, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, thus, as a result of that, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our response to such a great gift must be a life of worship offered in gratitude, reverence, and awe. Gratitude, reverence, and awe. Through Jesus Christ, the mediator the righteous judge of all the earth has welcomed believers to draw near and worship in his most holy place. That should cause you to be thankful. And that thankfulness then leads us to live a life of worship. Worship to this most high God. Thanksgiving for such a privilege is the thing that motivates the believer. It motivates worship. Thanksgiving motivates for what we have received because we know the reality of who we are. Depraved, unable to save ourselves, and yet the goodness and loving kindness of our Lord came and saved us, not by works done by us, right? And while we were still in our sins, 
Christ died for us, and this leads us to a life of thanksgiving that motivates our worship. And here we kind of come full circle, right? If worship is small, then thanksgiving is small. Your worship for God in your life, and I don't just mean raising your hands on Sunday morning when we sing a song, but the life of worship and that kingdom work that you do as an act of worship, whether it's disciplining your kids or speaking the truth of the gospel to your neighbor, whatever it is, right? That's an act of worship. You are a little priest offering up sacrifices of praise to your God as you intercede for your children. You are interceding like a priest before God. Those are acts of worship. And if your worship is small, it's because your thanksgiving is small. And thanksgiving is small when you view your sin as small. And when you view your sin as small, it's because you view God and his holiness as small. Or in other words, your life is not one of worship because you are not thankful for the debt that Jesus has paid on your behalf. And if you're not thankful for the debt that Jesus has paid because you believe you didn't owe a very big debt, right? And the result is a life of actually blasphemy and self-service. Amazing grace only sounds sweet if you know that you're a saved wretch. Are you a moping, grumbling, murmuring, murmuring glass half full Christian? Listen, you need to stop blaming that behavior on your personality. Okay? Well, I'm just a pessimist. Right? It's really easy for us to blame sin, grumbling, unthankfulness on I'm just a realist. Right? Here's a reality for you. You're a depraved wretch, and Christ has ushered you into his kingdom and made you a saint, a child of the king, and given you the inheritance of Christ. And that's got to conjure up some joy, okay? I'm not a typical Reformed Baptist. I'm not all doom and gloom, okay? Probably because of my eschatological views. But we won't get into that. But the kingdom is yours and the kingdom is now. So every battle that you fight, you know that the war's already been won, right? So you can charge headlong into the fray, yelling Christ is Lord, day in and day out, because the kingdom is guaranteed and the work you do therefore will bring about a great harvest. So don't blame that on your personality or a lack of, you know, seeing things in a positive way. And I'm not saying you got to run around and click your heels and, you know, you know the people that are all happy on the outside. Well, I'm just a tigger. You're like, just sit down. Um, right? Like, joy is an expectation that even though I face really hard things, that I have hope and I know the outcome. If, if Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and it's all going to be okay, right? And I can trust in that. And I can live in that. I'm unshakable now, and if I'm in Christ, I will be unshakable on the day. Amazing grace. Ingratitude was one of, if not, the primary mark of that unbelieving, rebellious generation who fell away. When you think about the Israelites and they're wandering in the wilderness, 
what is one of the things that always is conjured up? What is one thing that's always said? And they murmured. Why did they murmur? Against who? Their leaders. God's commands. Why? Because they forgot that they were slaves. Go back even further. They forgot that they were not even a people. Forget the fact that you're a slave. You're not even a people. And yet God came to you, insignificant and lowly, and made you his, and then delivered you by his mighty hand. It's taking you to the promised land, and yet, because you forgot that, you even went to the craziness of wanting to return to that. A mark, a primary mark, if not the mark of the unbelieving generation that fell away in gratitude. Oh, how many times did they forget the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt? They forgot the amazing grace that had freed them from their slavery. And the next step was always murmuring, grumbling, and ungratitude. So as we close, we got to be sure that we don't miss something very important here. It's not just a life of, of worship. I could say like, okay, this, this receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken, now the result of that is a life of worship. But if I leave that up to your own interpretation, if I leave that up to my own interpretation, then we can define what worship is supposed to look like on our own, right? I could preach a whole other series of sermons on that's why you need the covenant community. That's why you need your leaders. That's why you need the scripture because on your own, you're always going to give yourself a mark higher than you should, right? You're always going to fudge it just a little bit. It's important to distinguish worship from acceptable worship, okay? Worship from acceptable worship because what people like to do in big Eva churches today is, is not worship, in fact, it looks like dancing around golden calves is what it looks like. I mean, if we're going to experience and see revival in this nation, if we're going to see the United States of America come to know Christ as Lord over all, then churches must recapture what it means to live in a way of acceptable worship. And how do we know what is acceptable worship? By God's word. What is being neglected in our churches today? God's word. Pastors won't preach it because it makes people mad. And people don't like to listen to it or read it themselves because it offends our fragile clay pot egos. Right? Every issue that we face in our culture today is a Bible problem, right? Because the Bible defines the way not just Christians are supposed to live, but all people are supposed to live. Acceptable worship has to be distinguished. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. We must offer up sacrifices that God finds acceptable or pleasing. The psalmist says a sweet-smelling savor to God versus a stench in his nostrils. What pleases God in worship, right? So whether you are raising your hands as we sing a song and worship, 
whether you are saying amen, whether you are worshiping right now as we exposit the word, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in your workplace, whatever it is, true and acceptable worship is seen in repentance and faith. That's it. What does real, genuine worship look like? It doesn't look like me singing the same verse of some very shallow worship song 20 times until I get worked up into a frenzy. That's not what it looks like. It looks like repentance, faith. It looks like one faithful nail at a time, like Noah. I don't know exactly why God has me building this boat, but I trust him. And I'm going to tell everybody else that they should get on this thing. And if they don't, I'm going to praise and thank God because unbeknownst to me, because I am unworthy, chose to put me and my family on this boat. That, that faithfulness, radical worship, radical Christianity looks like faithfulness. In the big, in the small, for generations, you should want and you should believe by faith that your children will receive this inheritance and they will build upon the strong foundation that you set and your grandchildren and generations to come until we see the kingdom come about. True worship is seen in repentance and faith. Romans 12, I think Pastor Russ mentioned this last week. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. Why is, how is he appealing to them? By the mercies of God, in light of the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not just your spiritual world, but your bodies as well. Everything that you touch as a living, a living sacrifice. Don't crawl off the altar, right? Stay upon the altar of sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our grateful joy is blended with, with reverence and awe. We worship God for who he is, Lord of heaven and earth. Go, go read Isaiah 40. We, we read it this week around the campfire at Camp Boniface. Who are you going to compare to God? We worship God for who he is and what he has done. Who he is and what he has done. But often we like to jump in either one of those, right? No, we worship God for who he is and what he has done, blending our joy with reverence and all because our God is what? A consuming fire. He is holy, holy, holy. And the sacrifice that he requires is a life of holiness. So if it is not holy Christian, it's gotta go. It's gotta leave. That sin's head must be chopped off and it must be gotten rid of. Those who say they worship God and live in an unholy manner are hypocrites and blasphemers of the highest order. Well, how do I know a life that is pleasing to God in any circumstance? He has spoken it to you in his word, which is authoritative and sufficient. 
He is our God. Right in the midst even of our God is a consuming fire, he is our God. And we are his people. He delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He has committed himself to us in covenant and that is the reason he jealously demands our complete trust and allegiance. He shares his glory with no one and he shares his own with no one. The author is getting this language of a consuming fire from Deuteronomy 4. You can go read it on your own, verses 23 through 24. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made to you, and make carved images from anything that the Lord God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Take care that you do not give the glory that is due God to other things. And whatever in your life belongs to God for his glory must be given to him, which is what? Everything. And anything right now that's not being given to him, get rid of it and give him the glory in everything that you do. What things in your life are you sharing God's glory with? What things in your life are you taking some of the glory due to his name and say, I'm going to put it there, which ultimately at the end of the day is just self-glorification and is exalting to Satan and his dark kingdom. Because any worship that doesn't go to God goes to self and makes Satan very happy because that's the thing he wanted in the first place, the thing he desires most. God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his people's complete allegiance and this, in fact, is a language of love. Our God is jealous for us that he will, he will chase us down and, and discipline us when we go astray so that he might demonstrate to us his love. He has redeemed you. You are his, and he refuses to give you up. God's tight grip of grace on you is what is keeping you now immovable and on the day will keep you immovable when everything else is shaken into dust. He will hold you fast now and then. Great is his faithfulness. The only fitting response as we close to the glorious gift of God's grace is a life of worship that sings with the psalmist in Psalm 40, verses 2 through 3. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he has set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Is this psalm true of you? Is this your song of praise, and does your life demonstrate that this is your song of praise? If this is not your song today, then it won't be your song on that day. So heed the warning. Will you partake of that last offered cup or will you disappear into the potter's ground? We'll see. We'll see. We'll see when the man comes around. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, in the midst of the heavy warning, 
beautiful reminder that we belong, body and soul, to God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life and death? We belong to God. My life belongs to Him. So would you give us now the grace, and we have it, to heed the warning today to pay homage to the Son, to forsake all others, and give glory to you with everything that is in us. In Jesus' name, amen.